Wayne Cook calls himself Bumpy, which is an apt metaphor for the story we're about to share. In it, Wayne plays a promising young athlete, a crash victim, a soldier in Germany, a child therapist, a stage actor, the black Mr. Rogers, an arts administrator, a successful author, and Langston Hughes. As you might imagine, it's a story that's characterized by abrupt changes, some potentially catastrophic and others, well, portentous. It's also a story of perseverance. Actually, not so much perseverance as a belief that if you keep your head up, your focus straight, and allow the story you're living to teach you, the twists and turns can make sense in a way that are profound and long-lasting. In this episode, we'll hear some of the things Wayne has learned on his up-and-down journey, and a lot more. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 1. The Hollow. I often begin conversations with my guests by asking them to conjure the handle or street name for the character they play in the story of their life. Wayne responded with an actual street address. It would be Bumpy. 3909 Bumpy Street. Because in a, in a bumpy street, there's those ups and downs. Sometimes you're driving and it's nice and smooth. And all of a sudden you come to a, a bump. You have to push yourself up that hill. Sometimes it's little and sometimes it's steep. When I asked Wayne if all those up and down experiences had been a hindrance, he pointed to his life experience as an artist as both a through line and a lifeline. The arts will show you how to get through it. The arts show you the way. And thank God for me that I have been involved in the arts the majority of my life. Because without that flexibility and creativity, I don't think I would have been able to move over those bumps and then come over the other side. Yeah. You can't avoid the bumps. <laughs> you must go up and face them and absorb them and get over them because they're a learning process as well. Failure in life is, um, is part of the process. It's part of... It's part of the artistic process. It's part of life's process. There's no way of getting around it. And it's how you deal with failure is whether it's, it defeats you or inspires you. But because of that flexibility that is created in you within the arts and learning, I've been able to maneuver those bumps in my life. Wayne also points to his early family experiences growing up as a kind of learning laboratory for his lifelong involvement with kids, with child development and theater. I was the youngest in my family. And so I had the advantage of looking at six other people in front of me going through life. And I, I really learned a lot from my four brothers and two sisters. And that was really an amazing journey for me. It gave me the ability to try something and stepping back from it and trying again. And that was the importance of the arts to me, which drew me to children, actually, and which got me into the whole idea of children's play. 
because that's where I got started in theater is in children's play. I was going to study to be a psychologist. That's what I really wanted to be. I didn't discover theater until really later. Another important influence on Wayne's life was the neighborhood where he grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They called my neighborhood the Holla. My neighborhood was very unique. I don't know how true it is, you know, how stories get passed from uh, um, generation to generation, but it, I'm told that a group of Native Americans gave this land to a group of freed slaves in the hollow. And they called it the hollow. So where I grew up, there was a, this really big hill. And down in the bottom of the hill was this whole neighborhood of African-Americans. And up above were all white. I never did quite understand how that came to be. How could it be that you had to go all the way down this really extraordinary hill and every, all, everybody, every home down there, everybody down there were African-American and you moved up the hill and they were all white. So I had very little to do with white people except going to school when I went up the hill. Wayne's life in highly segregated Pittsburgh could be seen as an impediment. But it had a plus side, too. The Hollow was, in effect, an African-American village. Growing up there, Wayne was surrounded by a community of kin and friends who were nurturing and supportive. People with kind hearts and high expectations for their kids. Expectations that clearly made an impression on Wayne. His achievements in school and on the football field earned him a scholarship to Kent State University where he planned to begin studying psychology in the fall of 1965. Now, unexpected events often figure prominently in stories about how lives change. For Wayne Cook, unexpected doesn't come close to describing the devastating detour his life took on a hot, humid evening in the summer before starting college. And one night, I, I was with my brother and a friend, and we were driving in a 1965 Mustang, and he went through a red light, and the car went up and uh, went into a gas station, and, and my brother and I were pronounced dead. <laughs> yeah, pronounced dead. And, but then I heard some voices say, no, they're not dead. They're not they're dead. Not they're not, 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 they're not. And I, I ended up in the hospital and I'm telling my mother to bring me, because I love to read books, bring me, bring me some books. And she brought me the books and I couldn't read a word of it. I saw it, but I couldn't read a word. And I had to start from the very beginning all over again to learn how to read. But that gave me the patience of being able to work with kids, being able to work with youth. And out of that, I began to do creative dramatics and sitting down with a group of kids. And even before I knew drama, it's just letting them tell me where to go within this creative play. Part two. Letting the story evolve. The United States Army 
does not come to mind as an obvious next chapter for a young man like Wayne with a passion for learning about children and theater and play. Unfortunately, this was 1965, and the Vietnam War and the draft loomed large for Wayne, who, because of his accident, had lost his scholarship and with it his student deferment. Surprisingly, what should have translated into another bump ended up being, well, the right place at the right time. And I went into the service, and after six months school in Fort Sam Houston, got assigned to a Dr. Hudson in, in Germany. Dr. Hudson was one of the renowned child psychiatrists, but he used play therapy as his mode. And we had this big theatrical beautiful room with every toy that you can think of. And really, he taught me how to involve kids without telling them what to do, but letting them evolve. So that was really the beginning. And it was so important for me in theater as well, in terms of developing characters and not telling myself who this character is, but letting them evolve. Wayne is describing one of the big challenges that many teachers and therapists confront, namely, how do you keep from casting yourself as the principal change agent in your work with your patients or students? How do you avoid imposing the lesson or change you think is needed, and as Wayne puts it, letting the person's new or altered narrative evolve? In his continuing work in Germany with Dr. Hudson, Wayne learned this lesson the hard way. Um, still studying with Dr. Hudson and also doing some intake therapy with adults and kids. Uh, and it came the big day when Dr. Hudson said, okay, Wayne, here's your first child in the play therapy room. Go get him. <laughs> here's a little five-year-old schizophrenic functioning child who could speak but chose not to. And I was going to be that being upon the hill to get him to say words. And so I took this child into the play therapy room and he sat in the middle of the room and I did everything possible to get this child to speak. I did, I bet you, I bet you, I bet you can't touch your ears. I bet you can't touch your nose. I bet you can't touch your eyes. I got airplanes and I flew them around him. I got trains and I rode them around. I made these sounds and wanting this child to say something to me. And 45 minutes, Bill went by and this child sat there, did not say a word, did not move. I was sweating. I was defeated. And the 45 minutes was over and the parents came and knocked on the door. It's, it's over. It's time. They came to get the child and in our hall, in our um, therapy room. There's a long hallway. They grabbed the child and they walked all the way towards the end of the hallway. And the child turned around and looked at me and went. At this point in our conversation, Wayne raises his finger touches his nose, and then his ear. I knew what he was saying. He said, you big dummy. You sat me down there and you tried to force all this stuff on me for 45 minutes. And all you needed to do was 
create a safe environment and let me grow on my own and at my own pace. And that that was the one of the biggest lessons that I have learned. Well, his time working with Dr. Hudson certainly introduced Wayne to the power of creativity and play for human development and healing. He'd never had a first-hand experience with a real play on stage. That is, until a chance encounter with a colleague at the clinic. One day I was walking down the hallway of our, of our clinic, and there was this guy walking down the other way, and he says, have you ever been in a play? And I said, no, not really. He says, you want to be in one? <laughs> and the play was called Finally Gray, and it was a two-person show. It was an African-American guy and a white woman, and what happened was there was an atomic explosion, and there were only two people left in the world, and there was this, this man and this woman. <laughs> And it was how they dealt with the world after the explosion. Part three. The black Mr. Rogers goes to prison. After leaving the service in 1968, Wayne returned to Pittsburgh to continue pursuing his interest in youth development and theater. This combination presented some unexpected opportunities. I came out of the service and went to theatrical school, went to Pittsburgh Playhouse, which is right down the street from Carnegie Mellon. So we shared many of the teachers and quite a few plays from Carnegie Mellon. So from that, did some theater, and then from that, got the television show and called Cater Cousins. Cater Cousins means friends. And because of my uh, interest in kids and because of my interest in letting kids grow on their own i would we would do stories from around the world on this television show i was the black mr rogers of pittsburgh i i knew mr rogers in fact i've been on his show a number of times and he knew of me as well and basically just because I worked with children. And then when kids used to see me on the bus, I was this television show. They never understood why I was on a bus. They couldn't get that together. For a young actor with local TV experience and aspirations for something more, the next logical move in Wayne's unorthodox game of life was, well, Hollywood. So, in 1977, Wayne moved to Los Angeles, California. Like most starstruck newcomers to Tinseltown, Wayne's name did not end up in lights. He did, though, find work in the culinary arts and a well-respected children's theater company called The Performing Tree, before ending up in the last place he could ever imagine. So decided to come to California to become a star. And we came out here and scrubbing pots for... A, a company that made salsa. Then a lot of kids in theater, a lot of kids in theater, trying to figure out, trying to figure out how in the heck I was going to get all this done. And uh, then all of a sudden, one one day, I got a phone call from this guy named Bill Cleveland. He said, have you ever been in prison? So just like the whole thing, have you ever been in a play? <laughs> 
there's that question again. I have the prison for you. Wholesome, <laughs> which was just absolutely fascinating. Oh. Boy, I was scared. I was actually scared. What did I get myself into? I wasn't sure about this at all. And on many levels, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure about going in. I was aware of every stereotype about prisons, that every stereotype about Folsom Prison and walking through those gates and going through some of the training that you had to go through to go in uh, made you even more frightened with whistles and with making sure that they know where you are at all times because you don't want to get caught somewhere without them knowing where you're in Folsom. And, and then going in and seeing so many men that look like me and, and then having a lot of those men saying, you know, why aren't you in here? Why aren't you here? That's a question. That's a fascinating question. And I'm looking back at myself and, and throughout my life and saying, why am I not in prison? What was it about me? What was it about where I come from that I'm not in prison? And it has to go back to the arts. <laughs> that has to be the difference because when something is can go either way, when you don't have the ability to, to ration, to be flexible, you, you make wrong choices. And not saying that you're going to make the right choice anyway, but at least you give yourself a, a, a chance. Despite his misgivings, Wayne did make the choice to become a full-time resident artist in a new program called Arts and Corrections that was being established in California prisons up and down the state. Like the thousands of artists, free and imprisoned, who ultimately became a part of the Arts and Corrections family, Wayne learned that the people who live and work in prison are vastly different than he had imagined. I have uh, I've learned that there's much more to those guys that are incarcerated than what you see. But there's very few people that really take the time to see and to listen and to care. And I think that those of us who, who take the time to go inside are appreciated by them, especially. And it's really important that these kinds of programs continue. Otherwise, they're lost completely. And you're not going to save them all, but at least they'll know that there's some of us out here who care. And I've always cared, but it's, it's rough because there's so, so many young people that are um, going that direction. Part four, Langston and the Bureaucracy Whisperer. As with many of our guests, Wayne's story involves a lot of change, a lot of learning, and certainly a lot of adapting over and over. But just think about it. From relearning Dick and Jane, to the military, to child psychology and theater, then to television, and of course, hmm, Folsom Prison, for anyone just connecting these dots would be quite a feat. Thriving in this swirling mix of contradictory job titles and cultures is something else entirely. But, of course, for someone like Wayne, there's always another chapter. This one involving a capacity that he feels has made all of this possible namely his unique gift as a perceptive listener. 
and what I will call his talent as a bureaucracy whisperer. The California Arts Council at that time was having a hard time with the Department of Ed. And those two just did not get along at all. And because I worked on the K-6 theater and arts curriculum with them, they knew, I just knew how to talk to those educators. And so the Arts Council thought that maybe this guy, Wayne Cook, <laughs> may be able to mend some fences here. And so I wasn't actually on staff, but I was an appointee to the director. And so that's when I left uh, Folsom and went to the Arts Council. And my main job really was to connect the Arts Council with the Department of Ed. And it worked. It's quite possible that at this point in his life, Wayne had tired of all the changes that came with being Mr. Bumpy because he ended up staying at the California Arts Council for 23 years. Along the way, he wrote a book for theater teachers in schools that became, well, a bestseller. It got around quite a bit. In fact, it got, it got um, adopted in the state of Texas, which is almost a very impossible thing to do. <laughs> it was used in every state in the union except North Dakota. <laughs> One of the challenges for artists with so many facets and capacities like Wayne is that the art can get squeezed out by all the rest. But that did not happen for Wayne. Somehow he understood that his power to make a difference in all the roles he had undertaken rested on his foundation as a creator. So, during his time at the Arts Council, Wayne was always performing, particularly in his extraordinary incarnation as Langston Hughes. Langston was very important to me. His poetry, what he had to say, and taking him on and becoming him and reciting his work has been extremely important. And that came out of an experience with a theater company in Los Angeles where they were doing one of Langston's two plays. And the director said, Wayne, could you take one of Langston's poems and, and read it to the audience before the play so they get a better understanding of maybe who this person is? I did that for it before the play. And so I decided to look at it further and developed it into a one-person show with a jazz musician. Langston used to love going throughout Harlem into jazz clubs and just going up and improvising with the jazz musician. And bass players, he loved bass players. I did that uh, for a number of years. It was so fascinating how I would start off uh, in, in the one-person show with him with a tie and everything in, at, a, at a lecture and then progress Langston. We go from a suit and a, a, after every poem, he would take something off, like he was shedding this stuff. He would actually go back into, in, into the woods and he would end up nude at the very end. <laughs> he was just shedding, taking off this Western garb or going back to 
his natural self and ending up with what happens to a dream deferred, you know, as it dry up like a raisin in the sun. It's like, if, if you don't pay attention to this stuff, man, it's going to, it's going to blow up in your face. It's clear that Wayne regards Langston Hughes as a companion, as a fellow traveler speaking a fresh and relevant truth to 21st century American power. In our conversation, he called up that moment during the second day of Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Supreme Court confirmation hearings when New Jersey Senator Cory Booker gave the poet a place at the table. He is still speaking. Booker, you know, he loves him. Every time he comes on, recites something from Langston. And what were the words of your heroes in mind? What did Constance Baker Motley do? Did she, this country that she saw insults and injuries, when she came out of law school, law firms wouldn't even hire her because she was a woman. Did she become bitter? Did she try to create a revolution? No, she used the very constitution of this nation. She loved it so much, she wanted America to be America. As Langston Hughes wrote, oh, let America be America again. The land that never has been yet, but yet must be the land where everyone is free. Oh, yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, but I swear this oath, America will be. That is the story of how you got to this desk. Like Cory Booker, Wayne is well known for his open heart and positive spirit. And as an actor, he can play just about anything. But when he puts on Langston's suit and tie, something else is going on, and he becomes the poet in another time and place. One day, when I was visiting the Arts Council, I saw this firsthand. Most of the administrators were there, including Wayne in their suits and ties, scattered around the long oval conference table. We were talking about artists working in schools and prisons, and of course grants, which is the council's main business. Outside, it was Sacramento's summer scorching hot, and inside, it was a blinds-drawn, air-conditioned stuffy. The best way to describe the scene was, well, sleepy. Just as the meeting was starting to break up, a woman raised her hand and said, You know, before we all go, I just have a question. In that moment, the room paused, and everybody turned in her direction. She said, Here we are at the State Arts Council. This is the arts place, right? I just want to know, where is the art? Hearing this, Wayne just stood up, loosened his tie, and started in. It was a long time ago. I have almost forgotten my dream but it was there, right in front of me, bright like the sun, my dream. And then the wall rose, rose slowly between me and my dream, rose slowly, slowly, dimming, hiding the light of my dream. Rose till it touched the sky, the wall, the shadow. 
I lie in the shadow. No longer the light of my dream before me, above me. Only the thick wall. Only the shadow. My hands, my dark hands, break through this wall. Find my dream. Help me to shatter this darkness, to smash this night, to break this shadow into a thousand lights of dreams, into a thousand whirling dreams of sun. Of course, when he shared Langston Hughes's As I Grow Older in that meeting, Wayne was doing much more than providing an artful response to his colleague's question. Speaking these words, Wayne brought Langston Hughes into the room, not only making manifest the transcendent power of his poetry, but also providing an intimate glimpse into both Langston's story and his own. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Wayne for sharing his stories and to those of you out there listening and commenting across the globe. If you have a comment or suggestion for a subject or a guest for the show, drop me a line at bill at artandcommunity.com. And for those of you who are teaching or doing research or just trying to absorb as much as you can about art and community change, we want to remind you again about our new Change the Story collection. This new feature is our response to listeners who told us that they'd like to dig deeper into Art and Change episodes that focus on specific issues like justice arts, cultural organizing, theater for change, or children and youth. If this interests you, please check it out at www.artandcommunity.com. That's www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast dropdown or click the link in our show notes. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. It's written and hosted by me, Bill Cleveland, and our theme and soundscape are by the fantabulous Judy Munson. Our editing is by Andre Nebe. Our special effects come from freesound.com, and our inspiration rises up from the mysterious but ever-present presence of Uke 235. Until next time, please... Stay well, do good, and spread the good word.